Recently, I have been reading a lot of books. From last year to this year, my goal was to read 50 books in the year. And I thought, that's easy, that's 50 books. I could pick Cat in the Hat for 50 days and be done. But I'm not focused so much on length of book, just, just what I want to be reading, something that piques my interest. And so far I'm at 42, so I got eight more to go. We'll see if I get there. I've started like six of them. Uh, so I'm trying to get through them and, and we'll see where I go with that. Some of these books put me right in the middle of the story. I find myself captured by what this character is experiencing or what this character might be thinking based on what that character did. And I'll like kind of wake up from this trance like an hour later and be like, whoa, I was just in that world. That was awesome. And then other books don't do this. They're good, they're okay, they're interesting, but I, I zone out. And sometimes I'm, I'm just aware of the, the major plot points or some of the, the highlights of the book or a particularly interesting saying, but for the most part, I'm just like, oh, I gotta reread like three chapters because I just, I missed something. Well, the Bible is a story. It's, it's one long story written over a long period of time. And sometimes this story, like all the books that I'm trying to read, can be interesting and exciting. We can be amazed at how well-constructed it is. There's an overarching plot from beginning to end. There's interconnectedness of characters that don't even know that they're interconnected until they meet later. It's amazing, this epic story we're reading. And then sometimes we can read this story and we read it so often or we study it so often and we think, man, I gotta go back and read that because I, I didn't get anything out of that page. All of Leviticus for me, I'm just like, man, I'm really struggling with how many sacrifices they just listed there and what we have to do for all of them. But the Bible is interconnected. And even these parts that are a little bit more dry connect to some of the parts that are really, really exciting if we know where to look and where to study. 40 different authors, over 40 different authors with different backgrounds, personalities, writing all the books of the Bible over the course of a few thousand years and somehow every single piece is cohesive. There's a connection to everything all throughout the Bible. One of my favorite examples of this interconnectedness that the Bible offers is through the study of typology. And I've talked about this in previous messages. Essentially, for those of you that don't know, typology is where one person or event or thing is a shadow or representation of a person or a thing or an event to come. And so we could take something like the tabernacle and we can compare it to the throne room of God, right? Or the Holy of Holies in the throne room of God. There's also, the tabernacle has typology even within the person of Christ himself. It was plain on the outside, but was glorious on the inside. Kind of like Christ when he came as a man, just a regular man, but filled with himself as God on the inside. So this is typology. This is something I find really interesting and it allows me to connect parts of the Old Testament with parts of the New Testament, parts of the New Testament with parts of now, and it just, it brings the Bible to life for me. For example, Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50, he was a type of Jesus Christ. I've discussed this in messages before too. He was a special son. He was betrayed and sold by his brothers for profit. He endured hardship for the benefit of those who abandoned him. And he was exalted from his hardship into rulership, just like Jesus Christ. And the thing that I love about typology specifically 
is that it is so clearly untampered with by human beings. It's impossible for human beings to have tampered with the connected nature that typology offers. So, for example, Moses, who presumably wrote the account of Joseph, there's no way that he was writing that story thinking, oh, man, hundreds of years from now, a guy is going to try and live this out. i got to write something that's very livable. He wasn't thinking that. He was writing a story down, right, with a lot of different complicated pieces that Christ later just so happened to fit very perfectly. And the gospel writers, they couldn't have manipulated this to fit Christ within the typology of Joseph because they even had to have this explained to them. In Luke 24, 27, Christ expounds to his disciples on all the things of the Old Testament concerning himself. They didn't even know. They're writing stuff down like, man, we, gotta, we better record this. And then later they're told, did you even see what you were doing? They couldn't see it. So there's no way they manipulated it. Another type of study that shows God's hand in the workings of the story of the Bible is prophecy. Particularly fulfilled prophecy does this for me. I think with with unfulfilled prophecy, we can get a sense of wonder and awe. We can see that the Bible is this epic story. It's poetic language. It's got a lot of metaphor in it, analogies of this thing represents this thing. And, And that's really cool. But with fulfilled prophecy, we can see where that metaphor and that poetic language actually came true. It was actually fulfilled. And this, to me, just shows God's power, the complexity that he has to work within the narrative of human history to make things connect for us today. I think that's amazing. In Daniel 7, for example, we see Daniel writing about four beasts coming out of the sea. He writes about a lion with wings that the wings were plucked off and the lion was given the heart of a man. This is so similar to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when he exalted himself, then God brought him low, but then restored him from his animalistic nature back into his human nature. The next animal he sees is a bear with ribs in its mouth and scholars and even those of us in the church have recognized this is probably most well represented by the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was huge, it was powerful, it was immense, just like a bear. Then next, a leopard with four wings and four heads. This is Greece. Most people recognize this. Even if you just do a quick Google search on the four beasts of Daniel, this is not just a church literature thing. This is, all scholars across the board recognize this. But Greece was quick. They dominated so fast, spread across the land, and quickly took over territory. And then he talks about a fourth beast, which we know to be Rome, a terrible beast, lasting, malicious. Now with Babylon, one could say, of course Daniel could see that. Of course he's writing about Babylon. He's in Babylon while he's writing, right? That's not really prophecy. He's just writing about what he's seeing. Or you could even say Medo-Persian Empire. He lived through that. What if he just wrote the book of Daniel later and just kind of included Persia in this vision? And even Greece, one could speculate, well, maybe he just had a really good geopolitical guess at what was going to happen. And he just wrote, you know, there's like a couple world powers here. Let me just pick one. I'll say a bad thing's going to happen from that nation. Good guess, right? But Rome, at this time, that Daniel's writing, was on nobody's radar. A lot of people say it was like a city of sticks built in the mud by a river. That's how little people thought of Rome at this time. It was tiny. 
This was not a superpower. This was not a nation coming to conquer other nations. But Daniel predicted it. To me, this is incredible. Most skeptics even will look to this prophecy and say, Daniel could not have been written at the time we think Daniel was written. This was probably way, way later, back when Rome was actually a superpower, because they deny prophecy. And to me, this is what fulfilled prophecy does. It forces you to either believe in the supremacy of God or forces you to reject the truth that he hands right to you. However, sometimes even prophecy can fail to grab our interest. We've been in the church for a long time. We've read the Bible. We've read the booklets. We've looked at commentaries. We know what it's talking about here. Okay, I get it. We know God is powerful. He declares the end from the beginning. He's got a hand in major world events. He's working these huge, massive things in human history, all to point to the return of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's interesting. It's cool. But so what? Why should I care about this? It can be cool. It's amazing. It can be something interesting to consider. It can even humble us. But what's the purpose of telling us this? It's like telling a little tiny fish, man, the ocean you live in is huge. Okay, Doesn't, what's that do for me? Why do I care? I'm not affected. I'm affected in a broad sense, but I'm just a little fish. I, I, don't, I don't matter that much. These events that we read about in the Bible are mystical, and they're awesome. My life is ordinary, and it's mundane. The people in the Bible are amazing, and they're great, the best to have ever lived. But I'm plain, and I'm kind of simple. Except that you're not. You've probably heard the phrase in certain studies that the Bible comes alive. I've even said it in this message earlier on. The Bible comes alive. When we say things like this, I think we're, we're trying to say that we're interested, we're intrigued. We are diving straight into the word of God and we find ourselves lost there, mesmerized by what we're reading. But we can't forget that it doesn't come alive just because we find it interesting. The Bible is alive. It is the living word of God. It's not just resurrected when it piques our interest. Turn with me to Hebrews 4, and we'll see this. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Hebrews 4.12 reiterates exactly what I just said. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This next verse I'd really like you to pay attention to. Verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now many scholars will argue, is this talking about Jesus Christ as the living word of God, or is this talking about the written word, the Bible that we have in our laps today? They'll argue about this back and forth, and what's funny is if you read the arguments all the way through, essentially they all conclude it's both. So I don't know why they're arguing for so long. It is Jesus Christ. He is the word of God, and he is alive. But it is also the written word. It is the spoken word of Christ that we've received down through the ages. It is both of these things. In this verse in 13, no creature hidden from his sight. Yes, God deals in the magnificent and in the grand and in the epic, 
But he also knows every single star by name, knows when a sparrow falls to the earth, cares about you, watches out for you, and has a plan for you. The Bible is not just living or alive because its moral lessons happen to apply to you today. It's actually living, the case I'm going to make today, it is actually living because the Bible is actively about you. To illustrate this point, I'd like to look at three parts of the Bible where typology or prophecy center around you. And I want you to put yourself at the focal point of these things. I want you to think about you and how these prophecies or typologies center around you sitting in this room today. The things that are so incredible to me about prophecy and typology, it's, it's the precision that prophecy offers. How did God have it so exactly perfect? That amazes me. Or maybe it's the length of time between two things, right? He predicted that a thousand years ago, and for some reason that makes it way more interesting than if he did it yesterday, right? It's not. It's still a miracle. It's the same power working. But for us as humans, we just see this. It's like, man, he predicted this all the way back then, and that just is incredible to us as people. Scholars also like to talk about, within prophecy and typology, the already, the ongoing, and the not yet elements of Bible prophecy and typology. And these are kind of the, some of the things that we'll be looking at as we go through each one of these three uh, prophecies or typologies about you. Because the story we're reading, it is the Bible, but it's also human history. It's not just the biblical era. The story doesn't end when you flip over the last page of leather or the last page of the book of Revelation. The story is not done there. But sometimes we can feel as if it's done there because that's a book. We can put that away on our shelves. And then we know it connects to us, it relates to us, but we don't add ourselves into that story, that ongoing story. So we're going to be looking at those three things, the already, the ongoing, and the not yet. And I think they'll come clear as we go through. Turn with me to John 17, verse 20. My hope is by the end of this message you'll feel encouraged about the gravity of the impressive part that God sees you playing. John 17, verse 20. This is Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, starting in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, after he just got done praying for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Ellicott's commentary, as well as many others, that's just one that I picked out, but so many commentaries will point to this, that he points out that a closer and correct phrase of this translation should be, I do not pray for these alone, but for them also who do believe in me through their word. He says, as we have again and again found in these chapters, the future of the church is so immediately in our Lord's thoughts that it is spoken of as actually present. Jesus Christ talked about you, this church here, and you sitting there as if you were present. 
Now, this doesn't go into predestination. Maybe he didn't know which one of us would be here, which version of me would come out. I'm not sure. I don't know what he, he predestined or what he foreknew. It's not really for me to say. But he did know some things, and he did prophesy some things in this prayer. So what did he prophesy? One, that there would be those who believed in the apostles' testimony. That's the New Testament that we have. And we have all done that. That's something that Christ foresaw happening. That's the already. Two, that those who believed us would need God's assistance in maintaining proper unity. I think if you've looked at the last years of church history, you'll know that that describes us to a T. This is the ongoing. And now we'll go into the not yet of this prophecy. That the love and unity of God shown by those who believed in him through the apostles would one day point the entire world to Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's something we're working on currently, but not something that's totally fulfilled yet. Soon. But does Christ have to say in some sort of cryptic way, there will be a church found in Columbus, Ohio, and in the fifth row there will be this person, and that person will do this thing? Does he have to say that for you to add your name to this prayer and see that he was talking about you? Or can you read it and say, that's me. Christ prayed for me. And he knew what the state of the church would be. He knew what we would need. And he prayed for that for us. Could you imagine the disciples' amazement as they saw what happened to Jesus Christ and then looked back on this prayer and realized that his mind was in a place to pray for them? Can we not be amazed that throughout all the course of history, his mind was also on us just before he died? How much more should we be amazed at this? Turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. Going back to the Old Testament, because, okay, we're in the New Testament there. Jesus Christ just talking. Maybe, maybe you think he's just talking generally about the future there. That doesn't apply to me personally. That's just kind of generally about the future. I want, I want a cryptic prophecy. I want a metaphorical prophecy. Something that's really just going to blow me away. Something that he predicted for so long that there's no way it could be about anything else. Okay, let's go to the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. This was written presumably around 520 BC. I think that should be long enough to catch our attention. Haggai 2 verse 3 says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So they had rebuilt the second temple after the first one was destroyed. And if you remember in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people looked at it and thought, this is just not as good. Many of them were weeping. They were upset that they couldn't build it up to the glory that it had before. So God asked, who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. We'll keep on going. So this is a word of comfort from God saying, yes, this second temple does not look as good as the first one. 
My glory is not in this temple as it was in the first one, but I'm still with you. And here's the promise he makes. Here's the prophecy that you are directly involved in in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So when was this prophecy fulfilled? When did this second temple get filled with the Spirit of God? When did it have all the elements that the first temple had? When did it become greater? In 70 AD it was destroyed. Right now it just looks like rubble. So is it greater now? Is this latter temple greater? We could ask, did God lie in this prophecy? No. Because this prophecy wasn't about a building. This is a prophecy centered around you. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I think people in Paul's time had as much trouble seeing ourselves in the Bible as we do now. And Paul was going to set that record straight. I, I kind of like to think that the message I'm giving right now would be something Paul would say, yeah, I, I kind of said that same thing a long, long time ago. Probably better, better than I would say it, but still. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He's going to correct the Corinthians' notion that they don't really belong in the Bible. The Bible to them was the Old Testament, right? They weren't there. That was so long ago. Yes, it has moral application, but what else? Paul's going to correct that right here by showing that this prophecy all the way back from Haggai's time was fulfilled. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? You are the fulfillment of this prophecy all the way back in Haggai. Now, of course, there's already there's the already, there's the ongoing, and there's the not yet. So this is partially fulfilled, right? Right now, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We are building blocks of that temple. But the temple's not constructed yet. That's something not yet. In the kingdom of God, we will be a constructed temple of God. But right now, we are active parts of that. And then there's the ongoing. We accept the sacrifice. We become part of the temple as well as we can now. So all three parts are here. The already, the ongoing, and the not yet. Can you imagine, though, the frustration of the people in Haggai's time as they wait for this building to be better than the first one? Okay, he says it's going to be good. That means his glory is going to come to this temple just like it did the first one. We're going to see something amazing. Just waiting around. And then it didn't happen. Can you imagine the frustration of that? They were waiting for you. And they never got to see you. They never got to see the Holy Spirit poured out on God's people. But they waited for you. You're part of this prophecy. Can you imagine the people Paul is talking to having some doubts as to their place in the biblical story? And then being amazed that Paul tells them, you are the fulfillment of prophecy. How much more should we be amazed now that we get to be included in this? 
not written about in the text of Scripture, but just as much included in the fulfillment of this prophecy. How much more should we be amazed? Turn with me to Hebrews 11 for our last example. Hebrews 11, verse 33. To me, this is the most compelling one. It's incredibly humbling. And I kept having to read it so many times when I was studying this because I thought, man, this is so amazing that I have to make sure that what I'm saying is absolutely spot on here. Hebrews 11, verse 33. Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter talking about a lot of people who have gone before us, incredible men and women who did incredible things. And in this section, uh, just before this, it says, I don't even have time to talk about all of them. And then he says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection." Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. These are great people that have gone before us of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. For us. That was the author of Hebrews talking to people of his time, and that is the Bible talking to us right now. They did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us. God has chosen to delay the coming of his kingdom so that you can be there. He could have said, these people in the Bible, they're good enough. It's the cream of the crop. They did some amazing things. What are these guys doing? They're not persecuted. Why do we include them? But he didn't. And that's how we can feel sometimes. We look back through history and we say, Wow, these amazing men of the Bible, these amazing women, this huge testimony of faith that these guys had. Do I have that? Am I worth it? And God says you are. He has chosen to delay the coming of the kingdom of God, the promise of the reward to the greatest people who have ever lived, of whom the world was not worthy, because he's waiting for you to be ready to enter it. That's amazing. Matthew 13, verse 17, you don't have to turn there, says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's talking to you. And if you don't believe it, maybe you think this just applies to the coming of Christ that the people in biblical times saw. In 1 Peter 1, verse 10, this is reiterated after the crucifixion of Christ. He says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as it predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. You, the prophets, the apostles, were writing, serving you. Prophecy, typology, a study of the Bible where you have a central role. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, is thought to be written anywhere from the 70s, mid-70s, to even the mid to late 90s. And sometimes we feel the book of Revelation is a good round ending, a good prophecy of what's to come, and it even talks about things to come, so we say, ah, the end of the book, and we put it on our shelves. We've read through it, we get the general idea, we can appreciate some of the more interesting parts of the Bible. Maybe it's the good narratives that grab our attention. Some of the Kings and Chronicles, those are good narratives, they grab our attention. Maybe it's a study of typology that helps us appreciate the connected nature of the Old Testament, somewhere in Leviticus that you're just really, really struggling to get through, and the New Testament, something that seems a little more connected to you. Maybe it's a study of typology. Maybe it's a study of fulfilled prophecy that can make us vaguely hopeful that God's still working in big ways right now, changing the scene of major events all across the world, pointing to Jesus Christ and his second coming. Maybe if we're lucky, it's a study of unfulfilled prophecy. I don't know whether it's fulfilled prophecy, unfulfilled prophecy, or typology. I don't know what grabs your interest. I don't know what thing makes you realize that the Bible does not just come alive, but it is alive. But reading about where we fit into this story, reading and recognizing the parts where the great people of the Bible speak about us, and reading about the times that God had us directly in his mind, can hopefully cause us to read the Bible differently and with active minds.